Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanksgiving is next week, and that puts a focus on food. On this episode, we take a look at the state of food in Arizona. We begin at a Tucson farmer's market. Joe Marlowe is the owner of Southwind's farm and has a stand at the Rieto Market. On his table was a mix of lemongrass, winter squash, the last tomatoes of the season, and more. Marlowe spoke with our producer Emma Gibson about his experiences since he began selling produce in 2014. What have been some of the pros and cons throughout this throughout this journey? Well, for me, one of the pros for sure is that I get to work outside. I get to work with young people as helpers and interns for the most part, and that's really enjoyable. I used to teach um, at a tribal college and a community college, and so I really like working with young people. And the access to the food is a huge deal, too. Yeah, what, what do you really like about food? Just having organic, sustainably grown food is just really satisfying. I'm also a cancer survivor, and so I care about my diet quite a bit, and so that's you know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm growing it, and so I know what I'm getting. When it comes to the climate changing and us having these extreme weather events, no matter which way they come, how is the climate changing affecting you as a farmer in the area? It's making it a lot harder to grow. And if you knew in advance what it was going to be, you could plan for that, but you don't. I mean, we know what's coming, and so you know, there is some sort of long-term planning happening um, with me. But you're sort of whipsawed, um, and so you have to kind of constantly experiment. Um, like Greg, the farmer we were just talking with, having issues with the flea beetles and with other kind of bugs. When it's really wet, like it was, then we tend to have a lot more insect pressure, so there's a lot of stuff to deal with there. You know, last summer, so July was the hottest month ever, not just the hottest July, and August was the hottest month ever, so two in a row, that was last summer. So this variation, these extreme weather events that we're dealing with, just makes it a lot harder to grow, basically, that's what it is. But I've also seen on your website that you are primarily solar energy based. Yes. What drove you to kind of adapt in that direction? Well, I've been interested in sustainability for a long time. I knew that the electricity in the geography where my farm is, is from a coal-fired power plant. And that's coal coming in from the Powder River Basin. So. It's just not a sustainable source of energy, and I didn't want to have a quote-unquote sustainable farm that was running on the grid. The other consideration was just basic cost. Uh, it was going to cost me about $15,000 to bring the electricity into my farm, you know, only 600 feet away. And for the price of that, I could buy solar panels and inversion capacity. And I know that you have a background in economics. How has that background kind of influenced your perspective of some of the, the highs and the lows that you've talked about? Well, I'm a resource economist. I think what it does mainly is it allows me, it affords me the, a, different, a different way of thinking about things. One thing is I grow greens year-round. The received wisdom among the farmers here, and maybe I shouldn't necessarily be saying this on the air, but is that you can't grow greens in the summer. Of course you can't, I grow them year round. Um, so I don't have this sort of 
preconceived set of constraints. I look at things a little bit differently. I'm also, um, as an economist, I have thought a lot about how you price things, and so that comes into account. My prices change pretty frequently because I'm looking at a whole vector of determinants of supply and demand. Economists, most of us, are fairly quantitative, fairly research-oriented. That has affected me as well in, in my operation. Every year I try to grow different things, I try different approaches, I try to market things differently, change the names on things so you sell more. There's just a whole lot of research components that come into play. So you have your your table here at the farmer's market, but I also know that you have a community-supported agriculture business. What is that model, and what's the difference between your table here and your CSA? So the CSA, as you said, is community-supported agriculture, and we make the distribution of the shares at the market, so we can just sort of double up with our sort of overhead of doing the market. So it's kind of like a food subscription service. It is. In a way. It's exactly the way to describe it. You pay in advance, and you receive X number of weeks. This uh, season we're in now is. Um, 22 week season started in July. You pay in advance and you come to the market and you pick up your basket. You don't have really any choice. Occasionally we'll have a little bit of choice, but you don't have any choice. You basically take what's given to you. Um, it helps us a ton in a bunch of different ways. One, it builds a community. People care about who's growing their food. They want to know who their farmer is. It also allows us to iron out the lumpy cash flows. And so what it does is it gives us a chunk of money at the beginning of the season, and it allows us to have sort of a base. And so we use the money that we get from the sales of the CSA to do capital improvement. Well, and I'm interested about that. Um, you, you, you said that people want to know their farmer. What do they want to know about you? How does that go down? I think they just want to know who's growing their food and to be able to, to trust them. I mean, I can say my food is organic and it doesn't necessarily have to be, and I could just lie, I don't obviously. A lot of what happens this on Sunday morning at the market is that you see people come here, they buy their food, and then two hours later you still see them. They're walking around, right? They're going to talk to their favorite vendors. It's just a... It's a little way to draw people together. That was Joe Marlowe, owner of South Winds Farm, talking with Emma Gibson at the Riedo Farmers Market. Marlowe touched on some parts of the economy of agriculture. Dr. George Frisvold is an economist in the University of Arizona's College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. He says inflation, which is driving up prices for consumers, hits the agriculture industry also. Both food and energy prices are, are really, really volatile. Something can make them jump up and jump down. So huge shocks in prices in commodity markets, you know, for like the raw commodities, isn't that unusual. What's unusual now is it's filtering down to the retail level. Farmers get less than 15 cents on every dollar that you spend at the grocery store and even a, a smaller share of what people spend in restaurants. So a relatively large price shock at the farm level 
often doesn't translate into much much of anything people notice when they go to the grocery store. But what's been capturing the news now is that is starting to show up a little bit in grocery store prices. When it comes to inflation and sticker shock, it sounds like it's not necessarily driven, at least what I see, what our listeners see at the grocery store as inflation effects on agriculture as much as it is the entire system. Yes, the entire system really got thrown for a loop with, with COVID. And in 2020, we had this huge shift where suddenly things that places where food used to go, restaurants, institutions, schools, food wasn't going there. It had to go to grocery stores. So demand for food away from home went way, way down. Demand for food at home went way, way up. And so that disrupts supply chains. How many times have you gone into a grocery store and you go, oh, well, this item is low and there's someone right there stocking it just as it's running out. Everything's really, really finely tuned because businesses don't want to have a lot of inventory sitting around. But that just-in-time way of doing things really got disrupted with COVID. And so you had this big shift first where suddenly there was all this demand for things in the store. And so supply chains had to adjust. That messes up the supply chain because if you're selling at institutional levels, you don't have to have things individually packed with nutrition labels and things like that. But when it's going to the grocery store, it does. So grocery stores adapted, but the pandemic is is lasting longer than we'd like. So it's a question of, well, do we want to invest in all these supply chains when that might not make sense a year from now? Do we also see an issue with agriculture where, as you mentioned, that on-time aspect, but some parts of the agriculture industry, things are harvested or processed well in advance of when it arrives on the on the shelves of your local Fry's or Safeway or Albertsons. So there is there more of a lag with agriculture than people might realize? You know, you have canned goods, you have dried goods, things like that. But you have other things like milk, you know, or fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, their time is, is really, really limited. So, you know, now that said, you know, year over year, or I guess I'm looking at USDA numbers, like looking at like September to September numbers, kind of historically for things like different kind of meat products over the last 20 years is that annually inflation, depending on the item, is, you know, anywhere from about two to four percent. September to September from, you know, 2020 to 21, that jumped up about 10 percent. So more than, you know, people are used to. But at the same time, things like baked goods, the prices have gone up less than the historic average. But but again, if if you buy produce, there's a lot of times when, you know, you're looking, it's like, well, I'm not going to buy that because that's five dollars this week. I'll wait and do something else. Right. When you get something suddenly on sale um, in my house, it's always pineapples. They're two fifty a piece. And then all of a sudden it's two for two dollars and then we buy them all right and then you yeah or asparagus or something like that it's like you swoop on that so you know despite all the press that we've been getting about individual items what this means is that a grocery bill under normal circumstances it would be like a hundred and three dollars is going to be like a hundred and five dollars 
Right, just because of the differences that we see. Yeah, things will go up, things will go down, and people will substitute. Now, if you have your heart set on a particular thing, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Turkey. Right, it is that time of year where people are starting to think about buying turkeys. <laughs> and and Or things like, what is it? Celery. Celery prices go through the roof. Now, they go through the roof every year at this time. How much of the the food in your average grocery store in Arizona, how much of it is local? Dairy, a lot of people may not realize, is, is very localized. Yes. But how much of it is coming from across the country? It varies. Dairy, dairy products are very much local. Uh, produce, a lot of produce is local. I mean, a lot of the leafy greens that you're eating are coming from Yuma. Pretty much all the leafy greens everybody in North America is consuming in the winter is coming from Yuma County and Imperial County across uh, the Colorado River. People don't realize that. A lot of stuff's coming up from Mexico. And it's ironic because people tend to think of like imports as like costing U.S. jobs. But imports from Mexico are like one of the largest employers in Santa Cruz County. Right. We have all those big warehouses. Yeah. They're the ones that are transporting it. So by local, if you're kind of, a, if you're include, you know, is Yuma local? I would say yes. Is Northern Mexico local? Yeah. A lot of stuff is local. That was George Frisvold, an economist in the UA College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. You're listening to The Buzz. This week, we're talking about food. Right now, we're at a farm run by flowers and bullets. Joining us to talk about that is Tito Romero, the outreach coordinator for Flowers and Bullets. Thanks for spending some time with us. No, thank you all for having me. Really appreciate you all coming out to the space. Now, as you and I are sitting outside having this masked conversation, we need to warn our listeners. Uh, we're right in the final flight path of davis Monthan Air Force Base, so we might get interrupted by them on occasion. But tell our listeners more specifically where we are and what we're looking at here. To me, to us, uh, we're in Barrio Centro neighborhood. We're in the urban farm of, of Flowers and Bullets that we call Midtown Farm. So we're located on 22nd Street, just south of Reed Park Zoo. Um, between Alvernon and Country Club. And this is an old elementary school that you all have turned into a farm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're currently at the formerly known Keene Elementary School, which was the first TUSD school to close down in Tucson. This was uh, the school that many of us came to school at, uh, the Flowers and Bullets members. But yeah, it closed down back in 2004. It was either close down the Davis Mountain or close down the school. And that was a no-brainer of who won that fight. So let's talk about flowers and bullets. It might be a name that people are unfamiliar with, or they might wonder why flowers and bullets. It might be an odd combination. Tell us a little bit about the program and the name. Our name is a filtering process in itself, right? So we walk into some spaces, especially with youngsters or young youth, and we say, hey, we're flowers and bullets. We're here to do a presentation and dead silent, ready to listen, right? But flowers and bullets to us is that paradox where um, we come from hardships, we come from underserved communities, we come from what's known as the hood, the barrio, but we see the magic and the beauty that's behind here. Flowers is the art, that beauty, and bullets is that struggle, that resistance, that pushback. So in your mission, Flowers and Bullets says the goal, or one of the goals, is to reclaim cultural roots and amplify them. How do you do that? Many of us in Flowers and Bullets are like high school dropouts, or what we consider a push out or don't have like a higher education. 
So it's really important for us to lean on our cultural roots, our lived experiences, or our traditions that have been passed down to us to basically create a community that we would like to see in the future. A lot of us are, are um, raising our families in these neighborhoods. A lot of us are buying homes in these neighborhoods. So it's really up to us and it's our responsibility to do something beautiful here, right? So it's, it's, uh, it hits a little bit different for us. So we're at the Old Keene Elementary. It looks like a small farm to me. We've got goats and chickens and rows of vegetables coming up. Why, as Flowers and Bullets, put a farm in an old elementary school in the middle of Tucson? It's really important to us because we're, we're like right on the forefront of gentrification. We're on 22nd Street, and if you look at the wider map of Tucson, right on 22nd Street and south of 22nd Street, you start getting more of like your predatory lending, more of your dialysis centers, more of your um, liquor licenses per square mile. If you drive uh, up and down 22nd Street, we don't have any access to healthy food, organic food. We have jack-in-the-boxes, we have uh, Long John Silver's, some churches. Yeah, and the natural grocery store is north of us at a more affluent community. So it's almost like a, our responsibility to do something here in our community. A lot of us from Flowers and Bullets were graduates and alumni of the Mexican-American Studies program. So at a very, very young age, we started getting exposed to youth organizing, um, community development, and um, youth groups. So Jacob, Dora, and I got together and we really started scratching our heads and putting the puzzle pieces together of what Flowers and Bullets is going to look like. But we figured that food and art was a really good tool, really good tools to be able to talk about many different intersectionalities that were, that were happening to us here in the neighborhood from environmental issues and societal issues, right? But food and art are really the excuse to be able to talk about much deeper issues that affect us here in the neighborhood. Let's talk about kind of the purpose of the farm a little bit, especially when it comes to food. As we were walking over to sit at this great bench under this tree, we we're walking down the rows and there's broccoli and cauliflower coming up. I can see kale and, and all kinds of greens coming up. What happens to the food that's raised here? One, it's just important to be able to see this food growing. You, have, you don't know how many times we're growing carrots or we're pulling and harvesting and people come and had no idea that that's how carrots grow had no idea that's how broccoli grows. So that in itself is, is beautiful to have in the neighborhood, right? We have such a huge disconnect to our food, uh, huge disconnect to our culture, to our traditions. So here it is in your face. Uh, we're growing the squash that your nana grew. We're growing the beans that your nana grew. We're growing the corn that your, that your grandparents grew back in the rancho, right? But um, it's also important to see like where this food is going. Because of COVID, we've been able to, we've had to pivot and be really creative. And that's also something that these neighborhoods are really good for. We, we hustle. These communities brew ideas. These communities brew innovation. So we came up with the Barrio Sustained Agriculture, a BSA, instead of a regular traditional CSA. $10 gets you a, a one to two person bag. And $20 gets you enough for three to four people. And we also have a third option where you're able to sponsor a bag for one of the families in need here in the neighborhood. So at one time, we're up to about 18 to 20 different bags cycling out. So we don't have too much field, but we are able to harvest a good amount of food and, and, and distribute that back into the neighborhood. And whatever we didn't go back into the neighborhood, uh, went to the food bank, Pivot Produce, or Casa Maria Soup Kitchen. 
and for some of the, the produce that's somewhat going bad or not really able to sell, we would go back and give that to the goats. And the goats, there's a, a big piece of the component here of the farm that give us the manure. The manure gives us the compost. Compost, in turn, gives us the food. So we try to pride ourselves in being a regenerative farm here. So it's all staying local, but it sounds like you're really helping with issues of food insecurity and on the edge of that food desert. We don't have a healthy alternative here. And a lot of the diseases are curable diseases that we're dealing with, not just in Barrio Centro, but Barrio Libre, Barrio Santa Rita, Barrio Hollywood, Menlo, all these neighborhoods are very, very um, similar to each other as to like some of the diseases that we share. So heart disease, diabetes, these are all food illnesses, right? So if we're able to, to create more farms and put more flowers and bullets in more neighborhoods, um, imagine what that impact might be to our health and to like our understanding of, of health. And when we came in, there was a meeting going on. You all are trying to, to buy this space, you said? Correct. So in 2016, we were awarded this space by the school district, Tucson Unified School District. And now, fast forward, we're trying to purchase the land. Um, there's been a lot of restrictions of that we can't do. So being uh, privately owned would, would be able to uplift a lot of that red tape. So yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out how do we make it affordable? How do we use the money that we do have as leverage? Um, how do we use some of that for demolishment? Do we sublease after that? So yeah, there's a lot of conversations going on right now. All right, we better stop and let our friends from Davis Mountain fly over here. Yeah, welcome to the neighborhood. So what kind of community involvement do you have when you go out and you talk to the neighbors? Because typical elementary school, it's surrounded by houses. What do the neighbors think? Yeah, a lot of people forget that there's a school back here because it's so like tucked in this little nook back here, right? But uh, I would say this joke that like we're supposed to knock about 150 houses a day when we go canvassing. And it's almost impossible for us to do so because when you knock on that right door, it's like, Tito, come on in. You're not leaving until you eat dinner. Like, oh, why you look so skinny? And all these different things start happening. But that's literally the magic, you know, and that's kind of like what community organizing should be. We don't have the luxury to get up and go when our funding is up. We're here. We live here. All right, Tito. Well, thanks for inviting us out here to the Flowers and Bullets Garden. Now, thank you all so much for having me. And, and I look forward to having you all anytime soon. As Tito mentioned, the garden and farm helps with food insecurity. Our producer, Emma Gibson, and our production assistant, Samantha Lornard, explored that issue. Food insecurity can look differently for every person. For some, it's a lack of money to buy food or transportation to get to the grocery store. Or maybe there isn't a store in your neighborhood. As of August 2020, 32% of households in Arizona were food insecure according to a report about Tucson's food system out of the University of Arizona. It says 20% of people who identify as non-Hispanic white felt some insecurity, while 60% of Hispanics and 25% of what the report referred to as others experienced food insecurity in the state. Bridget Nobby with the university's campus pantry says about 13,000 students could have some of these worries, yet the pantry serves about 3,000 people a year. We're not even like touching what we could be. And we have the money and we have the ability to support you. So just come. She says since the pantry and the student union is open to the entire campus community, about a third of those coming in are staff members. When someone comes in, they swipe their university ID and shop using the pantry's point system. And everybody with a cat card has points. Some items like eggs and pasta are one point. 
while cans of black beans and corn are half a point. Nobby says unlike some community or federally funded food banks, the campus pantry doesn't require users to be a U.S. citizen. We see folks come three times a week um, and get all of their points. We also see some folks come just on like Tuesdays and they get a half gallon of milk and a box of cereal because that might be all that they need for the week. She says hunger impacts academic performance and behavior, and that applies to K-12 students too. Nobby says people who experience food insecurity as kids are more likely to experience it again compared to those who didn't experience it in their childhoods. Jill Wells works for the Vail School District, and her job is to connect families to community resources, like food pantries. She says food insecure kids sometimes come to school just to eat via the free and reduced meals funded by the state or federal government. So a lot of kids get their two meals, uh, breakfast and lunch, at the school and then go home to very little. Within the school district located east of Tucson, she estimates 30 percent of students qualify for free or reduced lunches. Wells says the local food bank and a church have developed a program called the Weekend Backpack Program. After the district identifies which families need the extra food, the kids are given enough to cover six meals, plus snacks and milk. So right now we have 110 students that will receive a bag um, on Friday. And when you look at our numbers, that is nowhere near 30 percent. The kids will also be getting extra food for Thanksgiving next week with an option to go to the Resources Vale Food Bank for a holiday food basket. Schools and traditional food banks are not the only groups working to end food insecurity in southern Arizona. Adair Steg, who goes by Egg, is with the Tucson Food Share. It's a mutual aid group that's purpose is to share food with the community. It sprung out of the needs of the 2020 pandemic lockdowns, and Steg says it gave groceries and other supplies to about 7,000 people over the last year. For us, mutual aid means that we are working as neighbors to help our neighbors. We're working as people to help people in similar circumstances or in circumstances that we can understand and imagine experiencing ourselves. Remember, 32% of households in Arizona were food insecure last fall. The Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona estimates that's about 150,000 people in Pima County. Steg says government has failed these Arizonans, and the only option left is to care for each other. That story was reported by Emma Gibson, the Buzz's producer, and Samantha Larned, our production assistant. And that's the Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.